Well, hello, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm Father Chris Alar here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. A little bit of a wet day, but what an amazing topic we have for you today. This, uh, of the 115 or so talks that we've done on Saturday mornings of Explaining the Faith, few have really... Um, got me really so excited about sharing something that I don't think we've ever really heard before. And between a combination of going back, you know, I had several scripture classes in seminary. Um, I was blessed enough. And the women's role in the Bible was never really the main focus, but we would touch on it. So I compiled all that, working again with our theologian, Chris Sparks, and really an amazing story today, what we're going to hear. And midway through towards the end, you're going to hear some things. I hope you stay with us until then, but absolutely incredible. So thank you again for joining us as we go back to seminary and learning about women in the Bible. So let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our minds and our hearts to receive the grace you wish to bestow on Mother Mary, the greatest women of the Bible, please show us and guide us in the way to understand fully the role of the feminine beauty, the feminine wisdom, and the feminine genius. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's great to see so many people here in the crummy weather, so we hope we can continue this even into winter. All right, so today's topic, as we mentioned, is on women in the Bible. Now, how fascinating, because we know Eve, we know Mary, but who was Rachel, Ruth, Rebecca, Rahab, all the R's, right? Judith. Esther. Amazing, amazing. So the Old Testament shows women participated in the covenant with God and took a very active role in salvation history. But during the past four centuries since the Reformation, um, this role, their role of the women has been obscured, uh, not because the Reformation was anti-woman, not at all, but because what has happened is there's been a lot of stripping in the churches of statues and paintings and images of these women. Uh, Martin Luther rejected the full Christian canon. So Judith and Susanna and the mother of Maccabees, they disappeared entirely from the Bible. And part of Esther, especially her prayer, which is really amazing, was removed. So churches now, in a lot of ways, are, are kind of blank. And the female saints of the Old Testament, we don't really see them or hear of them anymore. So this, this has also happened in the shift away from Gregorian chant. But you never thought of this. Gregorian chant has the words of the holy men and holy women has been reduced. Um, a lot of times disinformation about the role of women, especially since the 1970s, due to radical feminism, has obscured the feminine genus and the beauty. It's played a factor. Now, Judaism and Christianity have affirmed the equality of men and women in dignity. But there is a difference. Different but equal, right? Now, 
God, we know we made him, made us in his own image. In the book of Genesis, though, this is what's kind of interesting. It's an, ins- it's, you could say an astounding revelation about women revealed in the Bible. Let's look at our first slide. So here we see in our first slide, that's a very unique picture there. Because that's the picture of God creating Eve. Notice Adam is asleep. <laughs> right? So Genesis stunningly, stunningly records that God made male and female in his own image. This is Genesis 1:27. And the Jews received this doctrine, all right, that women are spiritually equal with men. They received that doctrine before any other doctrine. Any other doctrine about the angels or any other doctrine about the physical universe, the first doctrine they received is men and women are equal created in the image of God. No other faith came to this realization, all right, so early, and some never have, like Islam. So this is a revelation, and it was given to the Jews. Not only were they one of the first it was given to, but God made it first of all the things he gave them. So it's important that God made this his initial revelation to mankind, that man and women are created equal in his image. Now, the account of the fall, though, demonstrates that male and female are also equal in culpability, right, and moral competence, all right? He created differences between them. You know, we know this. In fact, even the punishment he gave them was gender-specific, right? For instance, Eve was punished, how? By the pain of childbirth, and Adam? By toil and labor. So even God recognized the difference. God didn't say, Adam, you will have pain giving birth to a child. No, he didn't. All right, so the church recognizes that Genesis demonstrates the full personhood of women. And Jesus gave this visibility to women in his ministry. We're going to talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> and the disciples did too. Now, this is backed up in church history. Oh, Father, the church is sexist and chauvinistic. No, St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine, St. Irenaeus, St. Thomas Aquinas, they all saw equality of the sexes. Even our catechism asserts that the women and men, full personhood, they have equal but different uh, makeup. They're equal, though, in their dignity. Now, here's where I want to get into something that I bet you've not heard before. The significance of women. All right, let's go to our next slide. Women in the Bible. Genesis records the histories of women essential to salvation history. All right, we know the basics. I'm not going to spend too much time. Sarah. Who was Sarah? She was the wife of Abraham. Hagar was the concubine when they could not conceive, and she, can, she bare the child for Abraham. Rebecca, who was Rebecca? Okay, remember on the men's side, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Jacob was known as Israel later. So Abraham, his wife was Sarah, concubine, concubine Hagar. Then who was Rebecca? Rebecca was the wife of Isaac. All right. Then 
What about Jacob? He had two. He had two, Leah and Rachel. You've probably heard those names. All right, they were the wives of Jacob. Now, these were good mothers, and they gave us God's chosen people. And unlike others, the Jews recognized that proper worship of God included men and women. Let's look at our next slide. Exodus now. Let's jump into Exodus. This has many passages about Miriam. Who's Miriam? Moses' sister, who in Egypt approached Pharaoh's daughter to save the life of the baby Moses. All right? And then what happened after that? Everybody forgets. She sang a hymn. So Miriam sang this hymn, and guess what? Her words of that hymn are integral to the Jewish celebration of Passover and our Catholic Holy Saturday. But you don't even realize that. On Catholic Holy Saturday, we echo the words of Miriam, the sister of Moses. Now let's look at the next one. Here's where it starts getting really crazy. This is Rahab. You know who Rahab was? Rahab was in the direct line to Jesus. If you look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, he descended from Rahab. You know who Rahab was? Prostitute. What? How dare you, Father, say this? This is blasphemy. No, it's not. It's all in the Bible. Rahab was a Canaanite. He wasn't even Jew. Do you know Jesus did not have a pure Jewish bloodline? This shocks people. This is a picture of Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute, but she ended up converting. She ended up helping two spies for Joshua before entering the promised land. So there's hope for everybody. She is called a harlot, but she's mentioned in Matthew as one of Jesus' ancestors, a prostitute. You know, of the women in Jesus' bloodline in Matthew, they mentioned five women. Four are not even Jewish. That's shocking. What about Tamar? She's mentioned. You know who Tamar was? A sexual deviant. She seduced Judah, the son of Jacob, her father-in-law, to have sex with her. But we're going to find out why all this happened. Ruth. Ruth's mentioned in the line of Jesus. Ruth was a, a Moabite. She came from Lot, not Abraham. And Lot, who was Lot? Lot impregnated his daughters while drunk. So we have a very, let's just say, skeleton in the closet of Jesus, right? Oh my, I didn't realize Jesus had these skeletons in his closet. No, they're not in any closet. Even Jesus comes from a line of sinners. That's why we needed the Immaculate Conception to clear that up before Christ was born. Now, Ruth. So she came from the lot. Now, what about Bathsheba? She's in the line of Jesus. She's from the line of Jesus because of Solomon. Now, she committed adultery. But she's in the line of Jesus through Solomon. Wow. Now I don't feel so bad about my family. <laughs> because Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba 
were all sexual deviants in one way or another, but they repented. There's, there's great stories of, of repentance and conversion. But this is in Jesus' ancestry. Why do you think that is? I think it prepares for the scandal that was about to come with Mary being an unwed pregnant woman. There was going to be a scandal coming up with an unwed mother who had become pregnant. So this helped prepare for that, actually, I think. <clears throat> now, this is why we need the Immaculate Conception, as I said. You know, Jesus came from a long line of outsiders, outlaws, scoundrels, and sinners. Bet you've never heard that. He took upon himself, though, the shame of every one of those in his family tree. This is fascinating. Not, just, not Joseph and Mary, of course. But what about Abraham in Jesus' family tree? He had shame. He had shame for allowing his fears to put his wife, Sarah, in a really uncompromising position. Or compromising. But Jesus bore that shame as he hung on the cross because now he protects his bride instead of Abraham giving up his bride. Jesus took on that shame, hanging on the cross, defends his bride. What about Jacob? Jacob had the shame of a, a lifetime of deception. He was a liar. Now here comes Jesus. He bore that shame. He always told the truth. What about Judah? The son of Jacob, he had the shame of selling his brother Joseph into slavery, lying to his father, Jacob, for years. And then he had an incestuous relationship with his son's wife, Tamar. Whoa, scandal. Jesus, though, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the shame of Judah was taken over by Jesus, this lion of Judah. How amazing and something you've probably never heard of. Now, he took that shame upon himself because he was sold into, by, for 30 coins, 30 pieces of silver. Did Judah not sell his brother Joseph into slavery? Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He took on his shame. Think about King David's shame over taking another man's wife into his own bed and then killing Uriah. Jesus bore that shame as he hung on the cross under a sign that read King of the Jews. Who was the King of the Jews? David. So here's David, the King of the Jews that sleeps with another woman, kills her husband. Jesus took on that shame on the cross as he lay, uh, hung underneath the sign that said, King of the Jews. The King of the Jews was David. Jesus bore that shame. Jesus came to save both victim and perpetrator, sinner and the, those sinned against. Let's look at our next slide. Jesus really adopted women into his ministry. It was shocking at the time. All right, Luke mentions, mentions this, that certain women who followed Jesus 
would have been unusual. Jesus didn't do this in first century Palestine. Jesus did. Look at the women in Luke's gospel. Just look alone. Elizabeth, Anna of the temple, the sinful woman, Martha and Mary, healing of the crippled woman, the parable of the woman in the last coin, the parable of the woman and the judge being persistent. Luke is full of this. Most of all in the Bible is the depiction of women being the first witnesses of the resurrection. That's shocking because women were not considered legal witnesses. So if the apostles were about to do a scam and they wanted to get two witnesses to verify something was truth, they certainly would not have picked women. They would have picked men. But God picked the women. Jesus had a different attitude towards women and the religious leaders at the time. Then, you know, then the, then the religious leaders, the religious leaders, the rabbis, they refused to teach women. Generally, they assigned them a very inferior place. But note that in all four Gospels, not one woman was an enemy of Jesus. Every single one of Jesus's enemies was a man. But with the disciples, same with the women. There was a mixed group. The men were mixed. The women were mixed. Let's look at the women who followed Jesus. This is interesting. We have Mary Magdalene. This is who Jesus cast out the seven devils. She had a very dark past. She was considered a grave sinner. But then there was Joanna right next to Mary Magdalene. Who was Joanna? Joanna was the wife of Herod's chief finance officer. She and confidant. She would have been very prim, proper, wealthy. For her to associate with the scum of the earth, prostitute, again, it's arguable if, if Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. I don't want to get into that debate. I do have another talk on Mary Magdalene up on YouTube where I cover this in detail. But Joanna and her, it's amazing to find that these two are in the same category. Even if she wasn't a prostitute, she was seven de demons were in her, so she was a sinner. But that's what Jesus can do if we let him. What about Susanna? This is different from the Old Testament, Susanna, that with Daniel, who was falsely accused. This Susanna, we don't know a lot. She helped Jesus, but we don't know a lot about her other than her name. Now, the apostles, what were they worried about? The apostles were worried about their status, how they were viewed. These women were not. They were happy to be quietly in the background, right, serving being servants and providing service and, you know, quietly being uh, of, of help to Jesus. This is why the gospel honors women. They imitated Jesus. So St. Paul says in Christ, there is no slave or free man, no Jew or Greek, no male or female. What does he mean by that? It was radical because there was basic social divisions in the ancient world said this. Free men are better than slaves. Jews are better than Greeks. Males are superior to females. And Paul's saying, uh-uh, not anymore, not in the light of the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't very proud. He took donations from these women. God bless them. The amount that makes up support for our ministry is is 
majority women. God bless that he's using you to help spread his word. You know, these women were deemed inferior, but Jesus didn't see them that way. We see the humble nature of Jesus. He was willing and made himself dependent on second-class citizens. Wow. So despite the fact that we have now come to see the dignity of women and the traditions, it's still not fixed. There's a lot of modern myth, all right? The fact that people today look at the Bible and say, oh, they see women as nameless, silent, passive victims. No, not really. Women are not nameless. Do you know there's more unnamed men in the Bible than women? Some women have entire books. Ruth, Judith, Esther, right? Are they silent? Not really. The Bible records numerous women speaking in the Bible, especially their prayers, right? Esther's prayer is recorded at length in Esther 14. And what about Mary's Magnificat? Amazing. The words of Judith, Esther, Sarah, Susanna, we sing those in Gregorian chant. Amazing. Are they passive? No. Passivity was definitely not Esther, Judith, or Susanna. We'll talk about them. Now, Ruth, Ruth cared for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was a strong woman. In a foreign land, being widowed, she upheld her adopted Jewish faith. She wasn't Jew. She adopted it. Solomone, who is she? Check this out. She was the mother of the seven Maccabee brothers. You know where the book of Maccabees comes from? Seven Maccabee brothers. She showed heroic courage, faith, hope, and love. All while she watched each son being martyred. Can you imagine for a mom watching seven, your seven sons being killed? You know, they could have been released all they had to do was renounce their faith, but she encouraged them not to. What a mom. Kind of reminds me of St. Um, Rita. That she said to God that she would rather they die than commit a mortal sin, and she didn't mean that to be insensitive. How many parents today would actually accept rather the loss of their child than them committing a mortal sin? Some endorse their children living in mortal sin. So... She didn't. She herself was then martyred. And Maccabees has her words that she used to strengthen her sons. You want to know what they were? You want to know a mother, what she would say as her seven sons are being killed? What would you say to your sons? It's in the book of Maccabees. Wow. Let's go to our next slide. Not all virtues, though, as we said, are present. There's sinful action in the women of the Old Testament. We mentioned some of that. What about Delilah? You hear Samson and Delilah. She conspired to capture Samson and defeat the Jews. What about Job, his wife? Job was steadfast in faith and suffering, but his wife was bitter. Not very virtuous. Why don't you condemn this God of yours? Both books of Kings... Talk about the manipulative and evil. Which person was that? Jezebel. 
In fact, so much so that that name has become part of our culture, a Jezebel. She worshiped Baal, B-A-A-L, and then challenged Elijah. Well, guess what happened? You know what happened to her? You know what happened to Jezebel? She was eaten by dogs. Now, that's interesting, because all of these women are not passive female puppies. They are alpha females, either good or bad. And this is how Jezebel met her fate, at the hands of the dogs. So, wow. Are they victims? Eh, sometimes. Not all the time, though. You know, Susanna, let's go back to her, the Old Testament now, Susanna. She, like the youths, remember the youths in the fiery furnace and Daniel, who was cast into the lion's den? She risked death to maintain her integrity when she was falsely accused. What Susanna did by standing up to those two older men that said, lie with us, have relations with us, or we will accuse you, she stood strong, and she showed, she shows that the way she acted was not because she was some victim or brainwashed of some patriarchy, but she had faith in God that he would help, and he did through Daniel. Remember, Daniel challenged the two and said, what tree were they, were they supposedly having relations? And one said, an oak tree, and the other said, I forget, uh, a fig tree or, or whatever it was, uh, a poplar or cedar. And her resistance to this sinfulness of the elders was what allowed God to expose them. Wow. This is God exposed their crimes. Now, let's go to the good stuff. All this negativity of the sins is just a reality check. But let's talk about the beauty of the feminine, the bride, the bride of the lamb. All right, many of the women of the Old Testament were modest virgins, Rebecca and Rachel, then chaste and active wives like Abigail and Esther, devoted mothers like Hannah and Anna, we'll talk about that, even devout widows like Judith and Zarephath, uh, the woman of Zarephath, who fed Elijah the time of famine. Now, in today's culture, though, we value women not for loyalty, but how they can disassociate themselves from religion or promote the personal power. They don't want to be tied to a man. It's a weakness. Today's culture, that's weak, being tied to a man. <clears throat> but the soul, check this out. Ever since the beginning of our history, mankind, the soul in relation to God, our soul, is described as a woman with her beloved. You ever read the Song of Songs? This is what's going on there. Amazing. The relation to God of the human soul is described as a woman with her beloved. Longing. The community in relation to God is personified very positively as a faithful bride and faithful spouse. This is in Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 16. When the community acts, though, 
adulterously or in idolatry it is portrayed negatively as what? A prostitute or an adulteress or a harlot. So when it's acting the right way, it's the bride of, of, of God. And when it acts negatively, it's a harlot or a prostitute. This is in Hosea 1 through 3. So basically for Christians, these personifications culminate in the images of what? The whore of Babylon, the companion of the Antichrist. But here's the thing, everybody. Their reign is brief. Look at Revelation 17. It's brief. But the church, the church, the bride of the Lamb shall reign eternal. That's Revelation 21, 9 through 14, or 22, 17, if you don't believe it. Wow, let's look at our next slide. Women have the privilege of being the sex that represents the soul, the church in union with God, the bride of Christ. That's why we say the church is feminine, female. I've said it before, that's why the priest is masculine. The priest is to give in the male. He's in persona Christi. Christ was a man. He gives the life-giving seed. But just like any consummated relationship, what happens when the man gives that seed? It's the female that receives it and nurtures it and gives it life and then gives birth, gives life. That's what the church is. The priest gives that life-giving seed from the altar. It's received by the church, the feminine. And then the church gives birth. It gives life. That's why this is the, 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 the symbolism of the church fathers. This is why, again, we're not going to get into this topic now, but a priest can't be a woman. Because a woman can't give that seed to the feminine. It would be lesbianism. You have the culmination of the union of male and female. God made the male and female. Now we're trying to destroy that and create 26 others. Uh-uh. And a male doesn't become a female. A female doesn't become a man. It's not that way. This is the meaning of what the church, the woman has the privilege of being the sex that represents the church, the soul, in union with God. Wow. All right, let's get into some of the women here again. All right, Tamar. Who is Tamar? Now, I remember in Bible study or um, uh, scripture class, I was all confused because I had always thought Tamar was this one person and I brought it up to the teacher. And he's like, no, 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 it's this person. There's two Tamars. There's two, just like there's two Sarahs. We know Sarah as Adam's wife, Adam's, Abraham's. We know one Sarah as Abraham's wife. Who's the other Sarah? She was the daughter of Tobit's relative. And guess what? This poor woman had seven husbands killed by a demon on their wedding night. Now there's a bad luck bride. You have your seven husbands killed by demons on their wedding night. Now this poor woman, let's take a look. All right, here's the first, here's the first um, 
example of, um, of this. When Tobit and Sarah, here's a picture of them. They finally prayed together. She finally had had enough. So sometimes God allows suffering because it's the only time we usually turn to God. So now remember, Sarah is the daughter of Tobit's relative and all her husbands died. Then Tobit and Sarah pray to God for deliverance. That's the picture. All these paintings you see when you go to Catholic museums or any kind of religious museums, you have no idea what you're looking at. I know I didn't. They each have a story. So here's Tobit and Sarah, the daughter of his close relative, praying to God. And guess what God does? He sends Raphael. He sends the Raphael, the angel, as an intercessor. What happens then? Tobit regains his sight and Sarah marries Tobit's son, Tobias. Now, this is not Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Different. Just like Tamar. There's two Tamars. Tamars. Tomato, tomato, Tamar's. Tamar's husband was evil. And the Lord ended his life. And then guess who took over as her husband? Onan. O-N-A-N. So you got Tamar. Her husband's evil. God ends his life. Onan steps in. Takes over as, his, as uh, her wife. As his I'm sorry. As her husband. He took her as his wife. But he didn't want to raise children for his brother, the one who got killed earlier. So he let his seed spill on the ground. Now, if you have little children here, this is a part that I want to explain. It's a little sexual in nature, but I want to explain it. If you have children present, maybe take this moment. But I think it's important because none of us understand. So you've heard of Onanism? It's another form for, for masturbation because Onan let his seed spill to the ground. He did not complete the marital act. So here's Tamar, husband evil, dies. Onan steps other in, takes her as his wife, but he doesn't want to raise children for his brother. He wants his, what would be considered his own and his obligation was to raise him for his brother. They would have been considered his brother's children. It's kind of strange. So he has relations with her, but he doesn't complete. He finishes himself and lets his seed fall to the ground. Onanism is that word. So the Lord killed him for this sin, leaving her widowed again for a second time. Now here comes Judah, Jacob's son. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons, right? They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And who is Judah? One of the 12. But did you think, oh, the 12 tribes of Israel, they must be impeccable. They must have been perfect. Uh-uh. Let's talk about one, Judah. Judah is Jacob's son. And he was to provide a son to be her new husband. Because all of a sudden, he's lost two sons. Her first, Tamar's first husband, and now Onan. So now he's got to come up with another one. So here's Judah. He's got to provide a son that will be a husband for her, but he did not. 
thinking she's bad luck. <laughs> Her husbands die. I don't want to get into this. I'm not going to provide you a husband. So what does he do? He sends her to live as a widow in her father's house with no future husband or children. So this is Tamar and Judah, the son of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, who we think are perfect. So Judah sends her away. Let's look at a picture here. Let's look at our next slide. Check this out. Then Judah's wife dies. And guess what happens? Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, as a harlot, and offers herself to Judah as he's traveling. This is a picture. See, you would see this in a museum and have no idea. That picture kind of looks like a guy stopping to buy a woman with a mask on, saying, are you okay? No, actually, that's a picture of a guy stopping by a harlot to say, I'd like to use your services. So all of a sudden, Tamar disguises herself as a harlot and offers herself to Judah. He accepts. Later, Judah learns she's pregnant. Whoa. Breaking her celibate vow, he thought, he calls for her punishment. So he's ready to squash her. But this is where he turns and gets good. This is the case with most of Jesus' line. Even though they were sinners, they ended up converting. Like Ruth. All of a sudden, here's Judah. He realizes the truth. He repented. And you know what? He becomes the first ever to publicly confess his sin. Judah, from the 12 tribes of Israel, son of Jacob, so Judah becomes the first ever to publicly confess his sin. So the child was allowed to live. They didn't abort it. And Tamar has twins. And she restores two sons to Judah because Judah had two sons killed. Tamar's first husband, who was evil, Judah's son, and then Onan, who spilled his seed, was killed. So now Tamar tricks him. They have relations. This is his daughter-in-law. And even God will forgive that. Or I should say, God will forgive even that. So not only did he repent, confess his sin, God blesses him with not just one child, but twins. Two fill for the two other sons of Judah that were killed. How many of you ever heard this? It's a beautiful story of sin and repentance. I learned this in scripture. Chris and I, Chris did a little research on it. I think it's fascinating. So she has twins, restores the sons of Judah who, Judah who had died, and now secures her place in the family. Wow! Guess what, everybody? From this line came David and later Jesus. Incredible. Jesus came from that line. Amazing. Now remember, this is a different Tamar. Who's the other Tamar? Or Tamar? 
David's daughter. King David had a daughter, Tamar. David's daughter. Now, that's another tragedy. Her half-brother, Annan, fell in love with her and was lusting for her. So guess what happened? Let's take a look. Here's another painting that you would see in a museum, and it just looks like somebody's sick in bed. What's the real story behind that painting? Well, he was sick, and King David, he asked King David, his father, to bring in Tamar. David brings him in, or her in. What does he do? He assaults her. He assaults her. Rapes her and then sends her away. What happened? Did she accept that? No, she spoke up. She spoke the truth and suffered for it. I saw one article online. She was really the first of the Me Too. We think this Me Too is just new. Tamar, daughter of David. Raped by her half-brother. Sent away spoke up, told the truth, suffered for it. It's a lot like me too. So no longer a virgin, she was unable to marry. She had to live in isolation, bearing the shame of this crime. Notice the Christ-like here. She bore the shame of his crime. She looked like the guilty one. She lived in isolation, bearing the shame. But God saw Tamar and allowed the truth about the injustice to be now told in scripture. Boy, you talk about telling the whole world. <laughs> you know, when, when you think about it, I totally believe that when we sin out of weakness or arrogance, that's why Jesus said the sins against the son are forgivable because what are the sins against the father and against the son and against the Holy Spirit? Jesus says only sins against the Holy Spirit are unforgivable. What's the sin against the father? The father is strength and power. We attribute strength and power. So sin against the father is sin of weakness. But in a sin of weakness has to be humility. I'm sorry, Lord, I did it again. I did it again. I'm sorry, I'm trying, I'm trying. I believe the Lord helps those people. But in the arrogance, if we're going to fall, but we're an arrogant person like Tamar's half-brother and send her away and accuse her, God's going to expose it. That's just my personal belief. God's going to expose it. And he did. Not only did he expose it, he put it in the Bible. Whoa. Sin against the son. What is the son? The son is wisdom. So sin against the son is ignorance. God forgives that. God, God, I believe, will not humiliate you publicly for it because you're working through it. You're trying. You're educating. You're informing your conscience. This is what we should have done at the voting day. If we voted for candidates that support abortion, we did not inform our conscience. If you tried and you tried and you tried, I believe God will help you. But if you are obstinately refusing to inform your conscience because you put your feelings first, uh-uh. But the sin against the Holy Spirit, who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's goodness. So sins against the Holy Spirit are sins of malice, hatred, unforgiveness. The final sin against the Holy Spirit is final impenitence. 
refusal to repent. All you have to do is repent. This is the message of these people in the Bible, especially these women. So what happened? God saw Tamar in her suffering. He gave her a voice. God sees us too. We might suffer or be victimized, especially a lot of women are, but he gives a voice. Also, in the Bible, the importance of female bonding. You know, Ruth and Naomi, you'll hear a lot about them. They're in the Old Testament. That's a tribute to beauty and female loyalty and friendship. You have a good female, you're a female, you have a good friend. Take a look at the next slide. This is Ruth and Naomi. Now, this is the book of Ruth. So important, she got her own book. The book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we meet Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. That's a picture of them. Now, Naomi and Ruth suffered in a famine. And Naomi's two sons, one of them was Ruth's husband, because Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Ruth and Naomi, both their husbands died, leaving both women alone. And because women could not own property at the time, Naomi's situation is desperate. She's an old woman. She's too old to remarry, and she has no husband or sons to support her. So Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law, her daughter-in-laws, to return to their homes. But Ruth refuses. What charity? So Ruth works in the fields and meets somebody called Boaz. Now you might recognize that name in the line of Jesus. Boaz. So he learns of her and her devotion to Naomi and he's really impressed. So Naomi hatches a plan like any good mother or mother-in-law to get her married, to get Ruth married. And she succeeds. Naomi's persistence to help return the favor that Ruth did for her signaled their strength of female bonding. God gave them a gift of connection. This deep bond and friendship shows that female friendships and connections are important. So here's the point, everybody. I'm not going to pick on just men or just women. I'm going to pick on both. You know what men's most common struggle is? Lust. You know what women's most common struggle is? Pride. You know, if there's a pretty girl in a dress and a couple are walking, the woman will be thinking, oh, can't believe that dress. Can't believe she'd wear that. And the man would be thinking, wow, she looks really good in that dress. So traditionally, not always, men struggle with lust. Women struggle with pride. Now, that doesn't mean some men can't struggle with pride and some women can't struggle with lust and vice versa. But that's the tendency. It's how I hear it in the confessional. I heard that a long time ago. After hearing confessions, I believe it. We all struggle in our own ways. But here's the point, everybody. When women can overcome temptations towards jealousy and competition and pride, the feminine genus blossoms. They can accomplish a ton. 
And Ruth shows this. Ruth emphasizes devotion to God, the God of Israel, and the importance of strong family ties. She didn't abandon her family. Immediately, though, let's keep going. After the book of Ruth closes, we go into the first book of Samuel. And guess what we find there? Another childless woman, Hannah. You may have heard of Hannah. Who is she? She was in the temple, overwhelmed with sadness, lamenting the fact that she's barren. Hannah then, God does this a lot in the Old Testament, became a mother. And guess who she mothered? Samuel. And Samuel was the great prophet who crowned David, the king of Israel. So what an important role. So in the Bible, the glory of Israel runs through women. They alone can give birth to the future. Men cannot. All right. So through Ruth, Boaz became the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So think about this. So all of this, the book of Ruth, you didn't know that. Book of Ruth, she's loyal to Naomi. She meets Boaz, he treats her good. He becomes the father of Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of David. Jesus comes from the line of Ruth. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Wow. Wow. Let's look at our next slide. You know who the other strong woman in the Old Testament was? Esther. Now, I think this story was told to me by Father Seraphim. I want to share with you a story Father Seraphim taught me about Esther that I had never heard. Now, this I did not learn in seminary. I learned this from Father Seraphim. One day we were at the table, and the topic came up, about why everybody wants to destroy the Jews. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Muslims, the Romans, the Turks, the Russians, the Nazis. Everybody wants to destroy the Jews. So I had the blessing of having years at the dinner table, Father Seraphim. And I'm sharing a lot of that knowledge with you. So one day I just mentioned that to Father Seraphim. He says, I said, Father, why do you think that is? He says, easy. Satan wants to destroy the Jews. I said, why the Jews? He said, because if Satan can destroy the Jews, he proves God a liar. Remember, God promised the Jews through Abraham, that their descendants would be as vast as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. So you destroy the Jews, and it says the progeny will live forever. You destroy the Jews, God is a liar. So what is Satan's objective, Father Seraphim tells me? Destroy the Jews. Then he proves God is a liar. I was fascinated. So he said one of the most interesting cases that linked all this together was the book of Esther. So he says to me, did you ever read the book of Esther? I'm like, mm, yeah. I skimmed it. 
One of the most important of ever to save the Jews was Esther. Her book in the Bible. Now, you know, I mentioned all those who wanted to kill the Jews, the Assyrians, Babylonians, Canaanites, Muslims, Turks, Romans, Nazis, Russians. Okay, let's look at the Nazis. Do you know that Hitler had 10 henchmen that he selected that their mission was to carry out the destruction of the Jews? Adolf Hitler, he selected 10 henchmen to carry out the destruction of the Jews. Now, here's what happened. After the war was over, the last of those 10 henchmen, nine had died, <clears throat> and the last of the 10 henchmen was being set up to be hung. And as he, he was being hung, Father Seraphim told me, he screamed, Purim. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. P-U-R-I-M. Purim. And nobody knew what that meant. So here they're executing this Nazi, this right man hand of Hitler in 1945, might have been 46. They put the noose around his neck. Just before he's hung, he yells, Purim. And nobody knew what that meant. And then Father Seraphim told me a Jewish rabbi stepped forward and said, this is a Jewish feast, the feast of Purim that goes back to the book of Esther. See, in that book, there was an enemy of the Jews named Haman, and he selected 10 henchmen to destroy the Jews, just like Hitler was doing. Satan is behind this. So Haman takes 10 henchmen to eliminate the Jews, but Esther foiled the plot. And she reported it to the king, who was not Jew, but he was furious. He kind of had a tolerance for the Jews. So this saved the Jews. And on the feast of Purim, it was established because that was the celebration of the Lord delivering his people through Esther. So on that feast, the 10 henchmen were hung. Are you kidding me? So here this last henchman of Hitler in 1945 or 46 is hung, yells, Purim. Nobody knows what it means. This Jewish rabbi comes forward and says, yeah, I know what it means. It's a feast. It goes back to the book of Esther. When Haman selected 10 Hitler, get it? Haman Hitler selected 10 henchmen to destroy the Jews. It was discovered and all 10 were killed. That is now the feast of Purim. So this man yells Purim, think he knew something? That he was in line in cahoots with that, that action to kill all the Jews, to exterminate the Jews? Wow. I'm sitting there at the table of Father Seraphim going, whoa, that's unbelievable. Now the Christians, God's people, continue to be the one Satan pursues. Why? Because the church has become the new Israel. 
So that's why we have the persecutions. I talk about 10 people being hung. What about the multiple people in the Middle East being slaughtered for their faith? We're going to be interviewing Father Richard. He leaves next week. He's the incredible priest I told you about from Nigeria. And I said, Father, I do not want you to say a word publicly if you're not comfortable. He says, no, 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 Father. I'm being called to tell the story. We are going to record him and put him on EWT, and he is insistent. I tried to talk him out of it. He's insistent. He wants the word out there of what Christians are facing in Nigeria. Satan's attacks. So Esther is a type of Mary interceding for the people. Now, here is one of the most fascinating things I ever learned in seminary. And Chris Sparks wrote a little bit about it. And I want to share it with you. This is one of the most fascinating things I'm about to share with you right now. The whole talk and maybe of any talk I've done. The meaning behind blessed are you among women. We immediately think of the immaculate conception and blessed because she's going to bear the son of God. Yes, all that's true, but there's something much deeper. This is incredible. All right, heroines are not lacking in scripture. Like we just said, we had the books of Ruth, Judith, and Esther. I just talked about uh, Ruth. I talked about Esther. We're going to talk about Judith in a minute, actually right now. You probably heard the name Judith. You probably never knew she was called blessed of all women. Check this out. Every time a strong woman has appeared in Jewish history, Satan has a reason to worry, especially with Mary. Now, blessed are you among women. Let's look at this. This is a strange blessing. When you first hear it, well, you're blessed, but not good enough for men. You're just blessed among women. Kind of sounds, it may appear to mean inferior, right? It may mean that, you know, you're good for a woman, but not for a man. It isn't blessed are you among all people. It's blessed are you among women. There are only three women in scripture. I didn't know there were any other than Mary that we're told, blessed are you among women. There are actually three. Three were greeted. And I bet you never heard this. Jail and Judith. You never heard that, I bet. I didn't. So I'm sitting in scripture class going, whoa. Listen to this. The three women, Jael, Judith, and the Blessed Virgin Mary. They're the only three. Now, why not just the Blessed Virgin Mary? She's truly only the one that's blessed among all women. But no, the other two were given that title. Why? All right, Satan. It has to do with Satan. Now, Satan must have been confused because the Lord said in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I want to say something about that. That right there to me proves the Immaculate Conception. Why? Why does God say, I will put enmity between you and the um, woman? Why does that to me prove the Immaculate Conception? Again, I'm taking you back to seminary. First of all, enmity means complete and utter separation. You can have nothing to do with that person. If you have complete enmity, there's not a single connection between you two. If there was complete enmity between Mary and the serpent, there could be no sin in her. Because if Mary even had an ounce of sin, 
even a sliver of a venial sin, that would mean Satan had at least partial sway over her. And that means not complete enmity. So I believe enmity means complete. It does. It means if she had sinned, she would have been at least partially under the sway of Satan. Impossible. So anyway, our Lord says this. All right. So he says, I will have complete and utter, I will give complete and utter enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translation, it's she, others, it's it. Now listen to this. This is ambiguous because in Hebrew, it is it shall bruise your head and you shall bruise its heel. In the Douay Reims, it's she. So all the devil has to go on here is that he's in trouble of his head getting crushed. Now check this out. At this point, he was probably looking for a woman fitting this description. So he might have assumed it meant Adam's wife, right? Whose name at the time was woman, Genesis 2.23. But then Adam changes her name to Eve, meaning mother of the living in Genesis 3.20. Now, here's what's fascinating. Eve comes and goes. She doesn't crush the head of Satan. In fact, Satan has the upper hand. He wins over her son, Cain. So wait a minute. Eve comes and goes, and his head isn't crushed yet. So the question remains open. If the woman isn't Eve, who is it? Who is this woman that's going to crush my head? Enter J.L. Never heard of her. J.L., Judith, and Mary were all told in Scripture, blessed among women. One of the great judges of Jewish history was Deborah. This is Judges 4.4. Now, Deborah prophesied the liberation of Israel from the oppression of this Canaanite king, Jobin, and his general, Sisera. Now check this out. She foretold Deborah that the Lord will sell Sisera, this is the evil general, into the hands of a woman. Now, Deborah goes on to praise whoever this woman is. And she says, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. She struck Sisera a blow, and she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture that I've seen before, and I had no idea what that picture was about. It's a woman over a man. This is J.L., killing this Sisera, Sisera. Now, Satan, the true oppressor of Israel, could hardly have missed this, that the nation's redemption was brought about through a woman, Jael, a woman crushing the head of Israel's enemy. Not the serpent yet. Not the serpent. But Jael crushed the head of Israel's enemy, and she's called blessed among women. Haha. <laughs> now enter Judith. This time, the Israelites are under the rule of the Assyrians. And they're led by another general, 
Holofernes. So read the book of Judith. Here, King Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard that name. He's the king of Assyria. And he sends his general, Holofernes, to destroy the Jews in Judea. Get a load of this. Holofernes lays siege to the region and starts to persecute the Jews, ready to destroy them. And all of a sudden, here comes a highly respected widow named Judith. She rebukes the Jews, the elders, for being faint-hearted, for being fearful. So here these guys are shivering and quivering, and this woman stands up and says, what are you guys doing? Be, be strong. So this is not just mere pity, for Judith had a plan to liberate her people single-handedly. Another great woman of Israel. Check this out. Her plan, she had a strategy to kill the general, Holofernes, to cause panic. So she pretends to defect. She goes to the general, promising to tell them all the Jewish plans, right? All the Jewish plans. Here's what happens. He falls for her. He's smitten for her, and he throws a banquet, gets drunk, and passes out. Let's take a look at that picture again. Judith takes a sword, grabs Holofernes by the hair, and decapitates his head. All right? No, I'm sorry, that one above, I'm sorry, the one above was jail. The next one, let's do the next picture. I'm sorry, I might have messed up Brother Mark. She's standing on a set of stairs with a head in her hand. This is Judith. Judith took a sword, grabbed Holofernes by the hair, and decapitates him. Father, you making this up? No. Judith, 13, verse 9 and 10. She lifted his head. That's the picture. That's the painting of the woman lifting the head. That's Judith lifting the head of the number one enemy of Israel. She crushed his head. So when she returned to Israel, Uzziah proclaimed, O daughter, you are blessed by the Most High God above all women on earth. Now, Mary hadn't been born yet. But you're blessed among all women on earth, and blessed be the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, has guided you to strike the head of the leader of our enemies. Judith 13, 18. Blessed are you among women. Why? Because she crushed the head of Israel's enemy. At this point, you got to wonder if God is basically mocking Satan by raising women up to crush the head of Israel's enemies. It's an indicator of what's to come for Satan. Now we get into Mary, the highest of all women in the Bible. So, Ein Karam is a spot that I've been to. If you haven't been to the Holy Land, this is where Elizabeth, where Mary goes up into the hillside of Judea, and she's greeted by her cousin. Guess what she's greeted with? Blessed are you among women. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you realize, uh-oh, that means she's going to be crushing some enemy of the nation of Israel, crushing his head. So what happens? She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is Luke 1, 42. Now we are familiar with this. 
We say it all the time in the Hail Mary. We just ramble through. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Did you hear what you just said? We're familiar. Now we're familiar because we hear, blessed are you among women, because it's in the Hail Mary. But Satan, the devil, has got to be familiar with it for a different reason. It's got to be the horror he hears when he hears, blessed are you among women. Because Jael, who was told, blessed are you among women, crushed the head of Israel's top enemy. Judith, who hears, blessed are you among women, crushed the head of the enemy of Israel. Now, only the third time in history of the Bible is it mentioned, and it is mentioned to Mary. Blessed are you among women. So Satan hears this, which is the honor given to both Jael and Judith for crushing the head of Israel's enemies. Now she's going to do the same. So Mary is the woman who will crush the head. Mary is the same, she's at the same place as David when David danced in front of the ark. And then it said John the Baptist leapt in, Mary, in, in Elizabeth's womb and the presence of Mary. The same word for leapt is danced. So you got John the Baptist dancing in front of the ark of the old covenant. You got John the Baptist dancing in front of the ark of the new covenant. It says that the sound of Mary's voice, the infant in her womb leapt, danced. Amazing. Scott Hahn talks all about this. All right. Then Elizabeth, this is, so basically this shows Mary's the new Ark of the Covenant. Now this connects here. Amazing. Elizabeth, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Just like David said in the same location, how is it that the Ark of my Lord should come to me? Man, amazing. So now we're speaking about Mary as the new Ark, and this conjures up visions of her purity and holiness, like the old ark. How do we know the old ark was pure and holy? Because if anybody touched it, they died. I feel bad for the guy in uh, 2 Samuel 6, right? All he does was try to steady the ark and he touched it. What happened? Dead. God struck him dead. It's that holy, you don't even touch it. That's why Mary's a perpetual virgin. Nobody's touched her. You touch the ark. It's pureness and holiness. You die. Nobody touched Mary. Wow. And why was the ark in the hill country of Judea? Get a load of this. This is fascinating. It was brought back by the Philistines, right? After they captured the ark of the old covenant, they took it to the temple of their God. His name was Dagon. Guess what happened? The next morning, they went into their temple and their God was decapitated. His head was crushed. So the old Ark of the Covenant was brought into this temple of their God, Dagon, and it was beheaded. The Philistines said, uh-oh, we don't want this. The, the Ark of this God of Israel must not remain here. It's got to go back. So they took it back. So this Ark is not just a pretty vessel. It's mighty, and it crushed the head of the Philistines. Now Mary's the new ark. She's going to crush, as blessed are you among women, she's going to crush 
She, as the ark, is welcomed as blessed are you among women, a greeting given in Scripture only to those women who will smash the head of Israel's great enemies. So let's look at the next slide. This is now Satan. He has every reason to be afraid. His head will get smashed by her, the great woman of Genesis 3.15. Last paragraph. God bless you guys for hanging in there. Five important women in the New Testament. We can't, we're talking a lot about the Old Testament. We can't forget about the New. Now we know about Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha. But some of the ones I just want to finish with, you've heard of, but let's talk about briefly and we're done. Let's look at our next slide. Who's this? This is a Samaritan woman at the well, John 4. Now Jesus is direct with her. And as they talk, she gradually understands when the men didn't who Jesus is. You ever realize that the first woman who contemplated and figured out who Jesus was is somebody you never would have guessed on a, on a seminary exam. Now we say Peter because he said, you are holy, you are the son of God. But even before that is a Samaritan woman. This is John 4. She comes to understand who Jesus is. She calls him a prophet and reveals himself as the Messiah. She becomes an instant evangelist. Returns to the city and tells everyone about Jesus. She symbolizes the natural process of coming to understand who Jesus is and how we should testify to his true identity. A woman. The first to truly know who Jesus is. Let's look at our next slide. A truly woman of faith. This is the woman with the hemorrhage, Mark 5. This is a story about the woman, you know the story, she suffered with the hemorrhage for 12 years. This is about faith. The woman suffered greatly. Doctors couldn't heal her. She spent all her money. Her condition only worsened. And she heard Jesus was coming. And she said, if I can just touch it, even touch the hem of his garment. What faith? Her faith was rewarded. She touched the cloak and the power flowed out of him and she was healed. She fell down before Jesus, outpoured her emotion. He calls her daughter, wishes her peace. We too can have that. Go to confession. Follow the example of the woman. We can just reach out to Jesus, even if just barely a little bit, just barely to grab a thread of his garment. Just a fringe of his garment is enough. Just a fringe of just saying, okay, I'll, I'll go to confession. That's enough. Look at the result. All right, a couple quick more. What's this picture? Next slide. This is the woman who anointed Jesus. This is Mark 14. Now here is a true prophet. Jesus was not the Messiah that anybody expected that was going to come and overthrow Rome. Instead, here's a simple, sinful woman. And instead, recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah who will suffer and die. This woman knew that. Although Jesus tries to tell his disciples this, they don't get it. They don't want to accept it. But this woman approaches Jesus at a gathering, anoints his feet with expensive ointment, and interprets, Jesus interprets her act as anointing his body for burial. She knew something that not even the apostles didn't. 
So someone understanding that Jesus will die and why he died was a woman. So you got the Samaritan woman understanding who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. You got the woman touching the hem of the garment. She throws herself in faith. She has faith that even the apostles didn't have. Now you got this woman who knows that Jesus must suffer and die. Now let's take a look at the woman caught in adultery. Let's look at our next slide. This is John 8. Now the men question Jesus, and they're finger-pointing. This is a sinner. And Jesus stands up and tells the woman's accusers, we all know the story, that whoever's without sin cast the first stone. They all walk away. They are all sinners. But how relieved are we to know that when we sin, we don't have to feel judged. The confessional is not being judged. The confessional is being forgiven. So Jesus forgives. He's in control. And that even in a crowd, he sees us as in need of mercy. He loves us. He says, neither do I condemn you. But he does say, go and sin no more. It's not a free ticket. So the bottom line, this woman was a sinner caught that repented and was forgiven. A woman. None of these are men. Finally, the last one, the poor widow, Luke 21. Wealthy people are tossing in coins out of their ex excess. The poor widow puts in two small coins. It's all she's got. It's an insightful statement. Jesus points that he has, she has put in more than all the rest. Why? Because she did not give from her excess, but from her need. <clears throat> Jesus literally says that she gave her whole livelihood to give from her poverty, to give from her emptiness, to give until it hurts. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Give to God everything you've got. Again, it's not a man. So the whole Bible shows Jesus fighting with these men. And silently behind the scenes are all the women finding who Christ is, asking him for forgiveness, having faith in him, doing everything to surrender to him. This is the Bible. The way of this woman is the way of Jesus to give and now count the cost. Amazing. To me, one of the most fascinating topics you could ever cover. Praise be to God. Thank you for being here with us. And you know, I want to ask you, invite you, if Brother Mark can, I'm going to have to skip the video. I, I want to be able to finish here. We have a, have a wedding coming up. But become a Marian helper. Become a Marian helper. You know, go to micprayers.org. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't take hardly any time. It takes about 10 seconds. It doesn't cost any money. If you never donate a dime, that's okay. I mean, I've always said, yeah, we have to keep the lights on and the bills paid. And God will send those people. If God puts on your heart to help do that, Thank you, and God bless you. But most importantly, I'm responsible as a priest to get you to heaven. And I care, and I read every one of your comments, and I try as best I can to meet the people who come here, because my job is to help get you to heaven. I don't get you to heaven. You get to heaven. God's grace gets you to heaven. We're just kind of that usher showing you the right path 
But to do that, you need grace. And when you become a Marian helper, you share in all the graces of our masses, rosaries, prayers, and penances, just like you were a Marian priest or brother. Incredible. And if you want to understand our faith deeper, please pick up shop at shopmercy.org. My book is called Understanding Divine Mercy. You can get it at shopmercy.org or 800-462-7426. Um, then the, another book I wrote called After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You on the next slide. That really is not just about suicide, it's about any kind of suffering or loss. If you're listening to this talk, you can't say you're the only one who suffered because listen to how these women suffered. Yet they persevered, and that's the meaning of the book. It gives hope. And then lastly, a DVD if you're not a reader. I got my DVD explaining the faith series on DVD that you can pick up makes a good gift, helps teach our faith. There's several talks on there about the sacraments, about Mary, about divine mercy. So we invite you to be with us, continue to stay with us, because this is a powerful message that God is giving. And we're very, very excited to be able to share the good news. And the good news involves men and women. God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody, and God bless you. Hi, I'm Father Chris Ayler of the Marian Fathers, and I want to tell you about a grace I hope you don't let pass by. As a member of the Association of Marian Helpers, you can receive all the graces of our masses and prayers and penances just like you were a Marian priest or brother by decree of the Holy See. It doesn't cost anything, and it takes but a few seconds to sign up. Please visit micprayers.org or call us at 800-462-7426. God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian Helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.